Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. Well, good morning. We're going to do that Italian prophet, Malachi, here in a second. Get a Bible. But while you all get a Bible and even say hi to the person next to you, if you're a kid and you have a tag on and it's got a yellow or blue or whatever dot on it, go out in the atrium, kids, family ministry, get out of here. Uh, Everybody else grab a Bible or even say hi to the person next to you. If you know them, give them a high five. Go. No one likes this part. Everyone's like, oh, this is awkward. So your extroverts were like, I love that part, and your introverts were like, I will, I will not, I will not engage this person. Um, we are ending the Old Testament today, all right? So some of you should be like, ah, I'm a little bit there. I love the New Testament. I can't wait to yell the New Testament at you, um, just because I'm a Jesus guy. We're a Jesus people, and when you get to learn about Jesus in the New Testament, But you have to understand the old to understand what Jesus brings us into in the new. And what we've done is we've committed two years of this church's life to just do one thing, read the Bible. We are going to hook our lives, attach our lives to the Word of God. Not men, not a pastor, but the Word. And so what we're doing is we're reading every day, what's God like? What has He spoken? What is He doing on the earth? And as we get to... Malachi or Malachi, however you want to say it, it's actually a really good book as a synopsis of the whole Old Testament. So if you were like, I didn't read any of the Old Testament anyway this time, I wasn't on your reading plan. You could read Malachi and catch all the major themes that God speaks to his people in this one book. I think you should read the rest, but it's pretty good. Now I'm a big like, I love synopsises, synopsi, summaries. Uh, uh, the things for dummies, I'm that guy. And if you want to know what God has yelled over his people repeatedly, it's kind of this phrase, I am a great king, where is my honor? That's it. That's the phrase. That's the phrase of Malachi. That's the phrase of the prophets. That's the phrase of really the Old Testament. I'm a great king, God says. I'm the king of heaven and earth. Where's my honor? Why aren't you honoring me? Now, if he was anyone else, if it was just like Frank in the back, and he's like, where's my honor? We're like, Frank, you're not that great. But when God says that, if your name's Frank in the back, I love you, you're amazing, okay? But when God says, I'm a great king, why aren't my people honoring me? We should tune in and and pay attention. Because I don't think it's just a problem for the Old Testament saints. I think the church today needs to re-again be like, God, we'll honor you everywhere. So what I love about this church, what I, it's actually an honor to open up the word with you. The reason that we do this, the way that we do this, is so we can't skip anything. And, and what I mean is, Malachi is not the, gress, the best like period on the end of a sermon series, because it's hard. He's actually, Malachi gets up in your business, up in your face, and is like, what's that? And he's not pulling any punches. Just be thankful Malachi is not your prophet. Because he, he's an aggressive brother. And as we get into this, you're going to have something rise in you and be like, that's not for me. Or I wish what's-her-name was here so she could hear this. Or you're going to get angry. And in fact, in the back of my head, I was like, I bet I can get people to walk out of this sermon. And not me, but the word of God is going to push on you today. And what I'm going to ask is that you could just, for, for a minute, for about 30 minutes, take a, a posture of humility And go, God, search me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Because the humble, God actually, the Bible says God opposes the proud. So if you're here and you're in a humble position and going, God, teach me. Even if it's hard, I'll do it. Then I think you're in the the best place possible. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to start in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. But before we ever crack the Bible, we're going to pray. Um, I know you all know this if you've been here. I have an agreement with the Lord. I won't talk about him until I talk with him. But I don't believe prayer should ever be used as a transition. Like I'm not trying to get from one thing to another. I'm I'm just trying to talk to my my Lord. 
And so I'm going to start praying, and you are more than welcome to join in. I told First Service, I would love if this church turned into a prayer meeting. I'll just table this sermon for next week. It's really that simple. We get to talk to God. He hears us. I want to foster a church that loves to be friends with God. Friends talk. So if you could, if you just want to assume the position, lay on the ground, I don't care what you do. Let's talk to the Lord. Jesus, we love you. We want you. More than I, I don't want to talk. I don't want to, I don't think they want to listen to me talk. We want to hear you. Uh, I'm, I'm desperate, Lord, for your, you, your presence, your goodness, your reality. So right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and make the, the reality of God real to us? Thank you for this holy moment where the saints of God gather in the name of the living Jesus. Would you free us today? Would you break chains today? Would you yell and roar over your people and fill them with boldness and fire? I thank you that this is your living word. And I pray as we read it, it would burn, it would cut, it would mold us according to your will, not ours. I thank you for every heart in this room. You love them. Would you allow us to feel that love today? Lord, I love this part where the whole room, it's not about a person, it's about you. Make that true this whole sermon, this whole time, the rest of our time today would be about you, that you'd be pleased, that you'd love it, that you'd make, bring a smile to your face. We love you. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you gave your Holy Spirit to us. Thank you get, that you designed history, that we might have the word. We love you, and we honor you here. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. So Malachi 3, verse 7, is a really good summary of the problem of the people of God. And it's not just their problem, I think it's our problem. And if you're ever wondering, why does God keep, to keep doing this? Because they keep running away from him. And he keeps coming and pursuing them. So in Malachi 3, verse 7, it's kind of like the message of the whole book summarized. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? Now, that's the summary of the problem of the people of God. And what we normally do is we go, oh, now this is going to be a sermon that makes me feel bad. But what I want you to draw your attention to is it says, return to me and I'll return to you. That's an invitation. That's grace upon grace. That's God going, I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want you to come back. I'm making a way for you to return. And if you return, you'll find that I'm right there. So if you are feeling in this room at any point in time today that you are far away from the Lord, this is all that it takes. And you'll find there he is. Return to me and I'll return to you. Their response is kind of taken in two ways. You can take it in two ways. They say, how shall we return so either they are really genuinely asking, how? How can we come back to you? Or they're saying, how should we return? As if they hadn't. As if they hadn't actually run away, dishonored, and done not what God wanted them to do. And I think those two realities could be very present in this room. You could either be standing in a place of like pride, a little arrogance of like, I'm honoring God amazingly this week. Or once again, the path of humility, would go, how? How can I be closer to you? How can I honor you more? You are a great king. How can I love you? So as we get into this Old Testament book, this is, this is what you need to know. Uh, they have left 170 years prior to this being right, written, out into exile. And when they get back, and we've already studied these books, Ezra starts to do these reforms around the temple and their worship and purifies it and they make a covenant with God. Then Nehemiah shows up and they rebuild the walls and there's all these reforms and structures happening. The city's coming back to life and God's going to dwell there again. And really what Malachi points out is all those reforms still didn't change your heart. 
And what you have to know about the people of God is when they went into exile, they were kind of scarred by it. Meaning that they, 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 they so were like, oh, that was awful. All our people were destroyed. We were hauled off in carts. We were in Babylon. That when they came back, this is what the theologians and the historians will say, they were super uber, I don't even know how, any aggressive word, hyper, hyper, hyper religious. And they were never going to lose that ever again. Because if God was going to send them into exile for not being holy enough, they were going to make darn sure that they were. And so they worked every external thing they could to be holy people. But really what it did is it externally really became the religious central. So this is when the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to life. Those same groups are the people that Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. This is where Malachi is when he's writing this book. A group of very hyper-religious people who have been exiled, who want to love God, are trying to do it in every, every external way possible, but God wants their heart. So as we get into Malachi, and my notes are literally all out of order, so just give me, just talk amongst yourselves for like two seconds. What in the world happened? I'm in it. You can just talk. I'm just like, hey, how's your day going? Mine's going really well. So far, 10 out of 10. Great. We almost just cut off 30 minutes of our life because I was at the last page of my notes, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) So as Malachi speaks these words, and he calls to the people the voice of God, this will be the last thing they hear for 400 years. Which is interesting to me, that he's going to pronounce, hey, return to the Lord, and there's some cursing he's going to say, and then there's going to be 400 years. They call it the silent years, where they say God wasn't speaking a lot, there wasn't a lot going on, and then bam, John the Baptist, Jesus. So this message is what's ringing in their hearts and their minds. They're sitting around talking about, you know, like, when God said that 400 years ago, do you think he meant it? And then Jesus shows up. And here's what I'll say. I'm not going to pull any punches today because the word of God is the word of God. All four of the things that he brings up are pertinent to today's life, but are also very, very sensitive issues. But for me not to talk about them would be to kind of dishonor the word. So I'm just going to go for it, okay? Do not leave. Please don't leave. I believe the Lord wants to bring freedom to somebody in the room. And so they were very religious, and these four kind of charges against the people of God could fit some of us in this room, and the charge, the first charge was this, they were very religious, but they were self-seeking. So very religious, so on the outside, they wore the right clothes, they did the right things, they did the right, they went to church, they talked the right words, they, they tithed their spices, but on the inside, they were about themselves. And you find this in actually chapter 1 of verse 13. Malachi is going to tell them that secretly in their hearts they're whispering things. So in chapter 1 verse 13 it says, but, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So the very first thing that God brings up through the prophet Malachi is, hey, the way that you're worshiping me, you think honors me, but it's dishonoring me. Because the things that you are bringing are lame. And in that system, you brought a spotless lamb, an animal without defects. But they were bringing the four-eyed, three-legged sheep. They were bringing the runt. Or if they had a lot of livestock, they were bringing the leftover little ones when they were keeping the best. And he's going, does that honor me? Am I worth that? And you can kind of see that that would make sense. If, you, if I gave you a four-eyed lame sheep, what would you do? Now, you put that into today's terms, and anytime I talk about worship in this church, you all get mad at me. But I'll just ask this. The worship you give God, do you think it's worth his name? Is it honoring him? Because the question is, didn't, did, did you like it? That's not the question. The question is, is he honored? He's a great king. Where is my honor? That's the question of the Old Testament. 
Now, we can say all day long, he likes the songs that we're singing. Does he? We can say all day long, he loves my life. Does he? And I just, I'm just asking, slow down long enough to go, did he like what I offered today? There's no judgment on that. That's not raise your hands, lower your hands, do this. I don't care about the form. I think God cares about the heart. So, so as you look at this, their worship was half-hearted, lame. They were giving leftovers. Now, I mean this to be funny, but I've experienced this a few times in my life. Having worked at this church for 15 years, there's a thing that happens. Usually around Christmas, you all are going to get some new computers, new stuff. You know what the church is going to get? All your old crap. So you get a brand new MacBook, we get a 17-year-old piece of junk. And you go, this will do for you. I'm like, it barely loads Windows. Right? I've talked to missionaries about this same phenomenon. So the American church, loaded as she is, gets all new nice stuff. You know what the missionary gets? Jeans with no knees and shirts that are fit for not even goodwill. And they wear it and they don't care. They're not actually asking for more. But this is what God's people were doing to him. And as you read this, there's actually some really weighty language on it in verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, as you read the Bible, it's always important to note things that repeat. That's good hermeneutics. So that title for God, Lord of hosts, is used more in Malachi than any other book of the Bible. Now, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Lord of hosts. You are the Lord and the hosts of heaven are at your bidding. You lack nothing. You're over everything. Why would he use that name? Because the people of God of that time were used to the hosts of armies, foreign armies, being around them. And he's going, no, 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 no. You think they're in charge? He is. The Lord of hosts is a great king who should be feared. So let's bring this into now. Like, if they were religious but a little self-seeking in their worship, a little religious but they held back stuff for themselves, um, I'll ask this. What does God get from you? What does the Lord get from you? Does he get your first and your best? Or your used and unneeded? And I know that's a harder question, but does the way that you honor the Lord inconvenience your lifestyle? Does it hurt a little bit sometimes? Does it change what you are going to do to do what he wants you to do? Because C.S. Lewis, he, and all these great theologians talk about this idea, but he said, you'll know that you're giving out of faith when it changes how you live, your lifestyle. So if you, let's say, let's say hypothetical, you come into a little bit of money after service today. Let's say five grand. I don't know. You don't find it on the ground. It's just in an envelope in your car. It's not, that's not a real hypothetical. But 5G's in your car. When you get back in your car, you come into a little bit of money. What's the first thing it goes to? What do you do with it? So you upgrade your lifestyle, get some new cufflinks. I don't have cufflinks. You buy something, right? Get off, rid of that debt. What do you do with it? What's the first thing your heart goes to? Now, I can already feel the room getting a little squirmy because I'm talking about money. Here, here's what you have to realize. It seems... As I read the Old Testament and the New, God actually cares about what we do with our real life. So God actually cares about what you do with your money, your marriage, your work. Those actually matter to him. And because those things actually reflect if you really trust him or not. And so when he's asking about money or he's asking about worship or he's going to ask about marriage and divorce, he's asking because he's after your heart. So don't just think about money. There's a reason I get up every morning and my first attention is given to the Word and the Lord. Because I want Him to have my first and my best. That's not a religious thing. That's a love thing. I want God to have my first attention and my first time. Some of you, you have jobs, you have careers where God wants to build the kingdom of God through your job if you give it to Him. But that's yours, not His. And you can start to see how the religiousness of, I, uh, I was going to say Isaiah, Malachi's day, where they're very religious but self-seeking, can seep into the modern church. Where we can start to become a little religious. I gave God Sunday. And I sang my song Sunday. 
but Monday through Saturday is mine. But God goes, no, no, no. What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all those days? Are you going to honor me there? So what I, what I would ask you is do your offerings towards God make a statement to the world that he's worth it? Because I think that's what the heart of this is. God looks at Malachi's people and he goes, the way that you give and the way that you're generous should make a statement that I'm worth something. The way that we're generous as the people of God should make a statement, your God's worth that? Yeah. He's worth all of it. He saved me. And 2 Samuel 2, 24, 24 says, I will not give unto the Lord that which cost, that which cost me nothing. So they were religious, but they were self-seeking rather than God-honoring. And then they were religious, but self-centered. So self-seeking in their worship, they wanted what they could get out of it. And then they were self-centered, and this was really demonstrated in their behavior in their marriages. So chapter 2, verse 13, if you want to head there, he begins to talk about, well, now not just your worship life, but your married life. Let's talk about that. Verse 16. The man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with injustice. Now, I'll give you some context. God has repeatedly told his people, don't marry the other foreign people. Not because he's a racist, but because he's, they're going to lead your hearts to other gods. They're going to teach you how to worship the Baals. They're going to teach you how to worship and intermingle all these other religious practices. And it happens. But what, what really starts to happen is the Jewish men, because they're Jewish men, start to take fancy of all the foreign women. They think they're real pretty. They start to divorce their Jewish wives and marry the foreign women. And then God steps in and he begins to confront them. And he begins to confront them because what their marriages were supposed to do are not what they now are doing. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's going to go farther, Malachi is, and say God hates divorce. So I'm just going to time out. Divorce is one of those topics you don't talk about in church. Money's not one of those topics that you want to talk about in church. Your worship style or what you're giving, no one wants to talk about in church. So if you start to feel shame today, that's not what I'm after. I don't think God's mad at you, and I think God can redeem any situation. My own father, I was born out of wedlock. Dad had three wives. God can redeem many things. All things. So what I want you to draw attention to is God says there's a reason my people should get married, and there's a reason they shouldn't. And when God says your marriage was a covenant you made before me, I can say that to anybody in this room that's married. The marriage you have was made before the Lord. Regardless if you eloped to Vegas or did it for the fourth time or the first time, God says the thing that you did, it was supposed to reflect my love to the world. And you can see that because he says this repetition of it was he made them one with a spirit of the union, the, with a portion of the spirit in their union. So even if you were like, no, it was just two, there's a guy and a girl, and they said some vows and some pretty things, and there were some flowers, and they let the doves go. Like, that's all it was. God would say, no, 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 I did a thing then. And when you dishonor marriage, you dishonor me. On top of that, godly marriages, one of their secondary primary intentions is what? Produce godly kids. I don't know if you know this, but sex makes kids. Eighth grade biology. And God goes, no, 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 one of the purposes of godly people getting together is to create generations of people that honor God. That's one of the reasons. Now, what you'll start to see in our culture today is a trending towards divorce, a trending towards irreconcilable differences, and a trending towards childless marriages. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think if you have 17 kids, you're more godly than me because I have four. And I don't think you're less godly if you have no kids or can't have kids, and I have four. That's not what he's saying. What I do think he's saying is our approach to marriage uh, is similar to Malachi's day. What we do right off the bat is we go, I'm going to find a girl. 
she's going to give me what I need. What can she bring to the table? And you already start marriage off on the wrong foot. Selfish. Because what happens when she doesn't? What happens when she can't? What happens when it gets hard? It will get hard. Amen? What happens in that moment when you don't realize that money and marriage and worship and kids is all lived under the glory of God? Well, then you say things like, honey, I just, we're just going to get a divorce. Irreconcilable differences. I'm just going to say this in the most... Me and Anna have a list of irreconcilable differences. I love her. She loves me. We butt heads. But I, I vow, not just to her, but to my God, that I, till death do me part. We don't even believe divorce is a word. And I know I talk like this, and some of you have been divorced. Like, once again, no shame, but God's intention is, I want to show the world that when I vow to them, I'll love them till the very end, that it's true. And Christian marriages, I mean, they show it. They image it to the earth. That God is a covenant-keeping God. And so when we make covenants, that's a covenant, marriage covenant, we are showing the earth, this is what God's like. And when we don't do it well, we dishonor. And when we go into marriage and we go, hey, I, w I don't want a kid, I want an accessory. We're doing it wrong because God wants godly kids and godly parents. That's is plan A. And so if you're in here, I can't really judge your heart, but what's your motive for getting married? What's your motive for having kids? If you have them now and you've never thought about it, today's the time. Take a time out. Why, why did God give us the kids he did? Why did God put me with the woman that he did? What does God want to accomplish on the earth? Because really it is about him. So they were really hyper-religious, but they were really self-seeking. They were really uber-religious, but then they were really selfish in their marriages. And then it just gets more and more fun, guys. They were religious, but unbelieving. So in chapter 2, verse 17, and then in chapter 3, verse 13, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. You have said, it is futile to serve God. The arrogant are blessed, and evildoers prosper. So there's a thought that I'd like to give to you that either will be terrifying or very freeing. God knows your thoughts. That, should, that either, ah, don't think anything bad, but you already have in your life, so he already knows. So he already knows what woke you up last night that you worried about. He already knows the fears and the doubts and the things that you speak against him in your heart. And here's what I know. Half this room says things like this. We just don't say them out loud. Because like when Bill in your office got the promotion, but he's not a godly man, and you got demoted, you go, God, is this really how this works? When your kid got cancer and the kid, other kids didn't, is this how this works, God? Where are you? So we don't say these things out loud, and I don't, actually don't have a problem saying these things. Let's go to Taco Bell. Get a Tostada Crunch. Talk about our real, real-life doubts. But this is what God's people were doing. Speaking, where are you? Are you even there? Do you not love us? And like I said, because we're in church, what we do is we come to church and we go, blessed to be a blessing. Isn't God great? When in the back of our head, there's no joy and no worship because all there is is doubt. So I'm going, let's deal with the doubt. Because at what point in time does it become offensive to look to God and go, with our mouths, God, we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ walked the earth and pronounced the coming of the kingdom. We believe that he died and was bodily resurrected from the dead. We believe that we'll be with him in heaven, but then live like it's not true. So either it's true, or let's get a new hobby, y'all. If it's true, let's deal with some of our doubts. Because I think some of us, you're walking in a dullness of joy. There should be stupid, giddy joy in the house of God. We should be the happiest people on the planet, but we're just as bound as the earth. We should, there should be not muted worship, but like, you should all be like, can you stop talking? We want to worship. J.C. Ryle, who's a theologian, he said, in the light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. 
Some of you, you're doubting his love, you're doubting his provision, you're doubting his presence, you're doubting his reality, but you're walking around like none of that's true. This is what Malachi's people did. They knew that God had taken Moses and brought them out of, you know, of slavery in Egypt. They knew that he led them through the wilderness into a land of flowing with milk and honey in the promised land. They knew that the prophets had come in the name of the Lord and brought them back time and time again. They knew that God had brought them out of exile. They knew the walls were built in his name. They knew, they knew, they knew. But did they know? On a deep level that God was with them, was for them, and that they could trust him. Their lives said no, their mouth said yes. So with us, I, I don't think any of us in this room, like your doubt probably never, I mean, never drove you all the way to unbelief. I mean, you're in church. You're in church for Pete's sake, right? So we at least know to do the right things. I'm in the right spot, doing the right things. But if we just stop for a minute, I was like, all right, what's my heart like? What's the testimony of my life? Is it bold belief and faith in God? Or is it muted worship, lack of joy, and little to no real like assurance in them. And I think there's these moments, and I see them in my own life, so I'm not even like you guys, these moments where I feel like I'm walking in more doubt than faith. And then I read scriptures and I feel like God's calling us to faith. God's calling us to actually take him at his word. Not to be like his people, not to be just religious externally, but to actually with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength love him. And then the final one, um, they were religious, but they were untrusting. And specifically, they were untrusting in their money. So as I tackle money again, I'm just going to say this. I say this every time I talk about money. I don't want your money. We're not taking a special offering. I don't have cufflinks. I don't have a private jet. I don't want any of it. What I want is to, I'm just going to preach the word of the Lord to you. And if you're not giving God his money, you're dishonoring him. You give it to whoever you want. But let's go. Chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? That you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore... Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so what you get is kind of the baseline starting understanding of what Christians call the tithe, which is 10%, kind of like the floor, not the ceiling. Because I believe in Jesus now, we are freed because we've been freely given to be freely give. We're called to generosity. We're called to give and not let money use us, but let use money to build the kingdom. Not let money own us, but let God own us, and then let our money show the world that there is something more to life than stuff, vacations, and a little bit of security for a little short time, but eternal security. So as we read this, clearly God doesn't have a need for anything, right? He talks about bringing everything in the storehouse. Who owns everything on earth? You're in church, just yell, God or Jesus. You'll be real safe, okay? Who owns everything? Who in all of creation, in all of earth, in all of heaven and earth or under the earth could actually go and look over everything and go, that's mine. Oh, that's mine too. That's mine. And not be wrong. God. So on some level, God wants to go, hey, if you belong to me, if you're one in Christ, one in the spirit, if you belong to me, then your marriage should reflect me then your worship should reflect me. Then your money should reflect me. But what we do is we compartmentalize and we go, God, no, no, we like almost spiritualize it where it's like, it doesn't matter what I do with my physical life, my sex life, my kid's life, my money life. No, it does. It very deeply declares where your faith really is. When we look at money, I've listened to so many tithing sermons over my life. I usually roll my eyes and go to sleep, but I've kind of caught one vibe. Tithing is one of the single best indicators of whether we really trust God and whether we really are surrendered to him. That's the, that's the through line of every sermon I've ever heard on this topic. And it's true. Because when you come in to new money, like I, that scenario, what do you do with your money first? 
So maybe you get some new clothes, go on a vacation. Then God gets a little bit at the end. Maybe you pay off that debt. Maybe you just hide it and save it. I don't know what you do with your money. The whole point is not that you can't have those things. Like, but why did you want those things? That's the question I ask. So if you were out on Friday morning, which is called Black Friday. Good Friday? No, black. It's very black. And you bought the seventh TV for your house that's 87 inches. Why? Why? I'm not even condemning it. I, I, I bought an Xbox for my kids because there's, I don't have any problem with stuff. Why? Slow down long enough to go, what did I think would, it would do for me if I had another TV? Why did I think if I bought that golf club, it would satisfy my soul somehow? See, you see what I mean? How quickly we can get caught up in the stream of, if I have more stuff, I'll be more fulfilled. It's a lie. Or if I have a bigger savings account, I'll be safer. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I think it's going to play out for some of you. And I, I know some pretty wealthy dudes. Let me tell you how it's going to play out. Uh, your kids, maybe their kids, are going to get around your stuff, and they're going to fight over it. And then they're going to parse it out, and they're going to go, this stuff is crap, and they're either going to give it to goodwill or throw it in a garage sale. That's how your wealth is going to end. So either you can spend it right now for the glory of God, or they will, hopefully, for the glory of God. Now, I'll say this. I, I don't think it's a problem that you have stuff. Like, I have shoes on. I'm wearing actual underwear. Like, it's not wrong to have stuff. Actual underwear. Not a linen ephod. Yeah, I know. Um, the problem is, what's first? Who do you honor first? Where's God in that whole thing? And that, that's really where I think Malachi puts his finger on the people of God. They gave the last sheep. They gave the lame sacrifice after their families had what they needed. They gave their wants first precedence in who they married. I'll marry the foreign girls. I'll marry three of them, God. You don't care, right? And he's like, no, I, I do care. That actually declares something about me. Uh, they were taking money and giving it to themselves and their storehouses before they were giving it to God's and his. And so as we look at these kind of condemnations of the people of God, I think they actually fit the church today. Maybe not this one fully, maybe not the one next door fully, but there's faint glimmers of it that I see. And so when I look at this, I, I, I see kind of four things. What do they need to fix this problem? Like, do they need more repentance? Do they need another reform? Do they need to feel really bad and make a plan? And, and really, what's God going to do about it? Because this seems to be the rotation through all the years of the Old Testament. His people run away. He sends a prophet. They come back. They promise never to do again. And guess what they do? They do it again. They do it again, and 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 they do it again. And that's where I most relate to this. So what we don't need is to come in and go, okay, God, I'm going to make a plan. I'm never not going to honor you here. I'm going to become really religious like the Pharisees. I'm going to type A this thing. But I have guys come to my office all the time, and they're on, I call it the hamster wheel. So they stumble and they fall. But here's what I know. All of you will stumble and fall probably this week. Some of you, you just got in a ripped out, drag out fight at Thanksgiving dinner. Called your mom some not nice stuff, Right? said shucky darn instead of shoot you shouldn't have done that um looked at stuff you should you're gonna get prideful you're gonna get lustful you're gonna get you're gonna fall and then we get back up and because we're american we go i know what i'll do i'll outwardly make a plan to honor the lord but it never gets to your heart it never deals with the reality that god is the only one who can deal with the sin of men and women's hearts because all that outward stuff all that, I'm going to give God a four-eyed, lame sheep. You know where that came from? The heart. That went from not honoring the Lord in the heart. What, where did the, I'm going to lust after foreign women and marry them and divorce my wife come from? It came from their hearts. Where does the, I'm going to withhold my tithe from God and spend it on me first come from? The heart. 
And so what Malachi does is he doesn't come in and go, rebuild the walls, make another covenant. He first pronounces the judgment, which I'll read to you, because it doesn't end very pretty. Chapter 4. But then he promises something. He actually promises someone. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so the last word of Malachi is actually the word curse. It's actually destruction, if you want to translate it that way. And it's really kind of sad because you start the books of the Bible in Genesis with, it was good. And God walked with them in the cool of the day. And then by chapter 3, it's all broken. But then God comes to a man named Abram and makes a covenant with him that he will bless the whole earth through him. Renames him Abraham and then through his offspring, through Jacob, through, through the prophets, you hear this through line that God knows that religiously we're just going to keep going back to the pig slop. That externally we want to honor him, but internally we're incapable. And so Malachi ends with, there's a curse on you. But then Malachi in chapter 3, go there, he, he promises some things. Malachi 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, this is a direct prophecy about a man that comes before Jesus, John the Baptist. So Malachi, looking at the people of his day, go, you're really religious and you're dishonoring a great king, but this is what God will do. He will send someone before the Messiah who will prepare the way for the Lord, for he and son of the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So he shows us this future coming. And then they enter a period of 400 years of quiet. And then on a quiet morning, a baby is born in Bethlehem. And angels sing, and that baby grows up to a man and declares that I am the Messiah, the living Son of God, and that I have come not to give you external things to do, but a new heart. To actually make it able for you to love God from inward out, not outward in. And that is the main difference between Christianity and any other world religion. Christianity is an inward out religion. Every other religion is outward in. I got to do the right stuff, say the right things, be the right person, wear the right clothes. That way God will like me. That's not how Christianity works. Jesus lived the life you and I couldn't live. So now I get to come to Jesus. And if you're recognizing any of these themes of Malachi in you, maybe you've been a little selfish with your money. And you feel the conviction of the Lord right now. All you need to do is go, God, I repent of that. Burn that out of me. Because Malachi says that when this Savior comes, he's going to be like a refiner's fire or like soap. He's going to come in and do what no man can do. He's going to clean the inside. He's going to make it so you can love God purely from a pure heart that's been cleansed. So as I read Malachi, I actually read a lot of hope into it, even though it ends with the word curse. And here's what I think, and this is where we'll end. Many of us, like in this room, not even like hypotheticals, you're living in the Old Testament. You're here because you think God will like you more because you're here. You're doing half of what you do because you're terrified that God will send you back into exile. So you're living on the wrong side of the cross and you're living in the wrong covenant. So Jesus shows up 
and he goes, all my people, God, all my people, like he's weeping over Jerusalem. And then he starts to beckon all his people to come and not strive, not do anything, but receive. So I don't know what you're trying to do to earn God's favor, but literally Christianity is coming to Jesus, acknowledging that I'm weak, and going, make me clean and new. And he does. But here's what I know. This is a heavy one. Because people stop talking about the first point in, and they all just look at you like, I'm terrified. Why, why would God send Malachi to say this to his people? Well, I'll end where I began. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? You will return in humbleness. You will return in meekness. And I think God will meet you. And all you need to do is turn. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite the band, and I'd like to pray. And I'm going to sit you before the Lord. And maybe, maybe you're not honoring God in your marriage. And God's going to correct you today to lead you into life, not rob you. Maybe you've been a little stingy, you've been a little scroogey with your money. And God's like, will you trust me with that too? And this is the day you start trusting God with your money and watching him bless. Maybe you're in here and God wants to produce a worship that's not forced or fake, but you actually deal with your doubt. So can you just get in a place to listen to God? Jesus, I thank you for your word. I think it is true. I don't have to pretty it up. Let's make it softer. It is what it is. So I just pray that prayer, Lord. Like, search me, oh God. Search us, Lord. See if there's any wicked or grievous way in us. Correct us. Convict us and then lead us in the way everlasting. So with you, right there, you in your seat, would you talk to God? Would you confess your sin? If you're a husband and you've not been living in a way that honors your wife, I can fairly say biblically that you've been dishonoring the Lord. Tell him that. Say, I'm sorry. Maybe it's your money. Maybe you've been trying so hard to save up so you'll feel safe when the, like a rainy day comes and you've slowly put your faith in money and not the Lord. Repent. Tell him I'm sorry. Say, burn that out of me. I want to trust you alone, God. Or maybe it's your worship. Maybe you've been spending a lot of time giving attention and praise to stuff in the world. And God's convicting you and correcting you right now. So Holy Spirit, would you come and put your finger on what you want to free us from? Would you come bring newness to us? I thank you for your word. The word of God goes on. as a people, Lord, we want to honor you. You are a great king. You are a great king, worthy of the highest praise. You're worth not just a part of my life, but all of it. And I thank you, Lord, that you're a redeemer, that you can take the most selfish, broken marriage, self-worshipper, and turn them into a son of God. Father, I ask right now for the the Christians in the room, they have the Holy Spirit. Would you bring someone to mind that we can bless, that we can be generous with? Coolest thing about the Lord, church, is that you might be in a, a huge selfish season of your life, and then he redeems you, and then he uses you to build his kingdom because he's so good. 
So, Father, like, just listen to them. Like, maybe a, a person will come to mind. Lord, would you show us who you want us, want us to serve? Who we could be generous to? Come right now in this room, very tangible way, Lord, and be that refiner, that you would purify the silver, you would purify these sons and daughters, and then as we sing right now, that they would be offerings of worship and praise and righteousness. I thank you that we don't have to do anything to get righteousness. I thank you that Jesus Christ alone makes us righteous. So we receive that goodness of the Lord. So church, I'm going I'm to leave you right there, sitting before God, repenting, being honest with Him. Maybe you have doubt. Tell Him. Maybe you're like, no, 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 I don't, I want to worship the Lord right now. Good. I hope that's what it produces. We're going to worship we're going to respond, we're going to repent, we're going to let God refine us, we're going to give him everything because he's worthy of it. So I would invite you to sit as long as you need, we're going to step back into singing worship. But if you need to repent, come lay down, come kneel, come, come confess to a prayer counselor. Yeah, sit there before the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.